a thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard. It can move anywhere. Haven, concentrate on sin. Give priority to the detectors and the navigation systems. There is a corridor, and the corridor is time. It surrounds all things. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch, the lights probably gone. So had the stairs. You are just number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Welcome to British Invaders, episode 390. This is the podcast all about British science fiction television, and this time we are continuing our discussion about Alice in Wonderland. This is Brian from Canada. And this is Eamon from England. Hello. So we are looking at a 1966 television adaptation of the Lewis Carroll classic, Directed and produced by Jonathan Miller. It's a 70-minute black-and-white production with a very unusual take on Alice in Wonderland that does not have the usual anthropomorphic animals or animal costumes as we know from the drawings from uh, many publications and from other adaptations. It's an interesting and strange version of the book for us to talk about here on British Invaders. So, last time we started to tell you about some of Alice's adventures in this wonderland. Her rather sort of calm and curious journey through various episodes from the book continues... So you're probably familiar with these if you've seen versions of Alice in Wonderland or read the book. You'll know that she's going to encounter the rather strange Caucus race. She's going to come across characters painting white roses red. She's going to end up involved in a croquet game, although it's a rather strange version of it here that we see on screen. There's the scene by the beach with the mock turtle and the griffin. And of course, she will end up in the King of Hearts courtroom when her all will be decided, including her possible fate. So we're going to get all these weird and strange sequences in this production. Yes, and she does all of this with a sort of strange stillness an almost dispassionate, interested observation of what's going on. And we hear some of her thoughts as voiceover. We mentioned that last time, but we have that continuing throughout, as well as her making comments about uh, what's happening directly to some of the other characters in quite a critical way, I think. Most of the dialogue here is taken straight from the book, apart from some ad-libs from Peter Sellers and Peter Cook and John Byrd and others. But it's mostly dialogue from the book, but it's delivered in a more serious way that makes Alice sort of quite edgy and critical in some scenes. Yes, I mean, we'll perhaps talk about how the dialogue is delivered later on when we get to our own views on this production. But there are strange moments when it almost seems like characters are just saying or speaking lines and nobody else is really taking much notice or interacting with them. Um, it's, you know, it's one of the very many strange features of this version that we're watching. Yes, I think that's fair. Now, as we said last time, so many different versions and interpretations of Alice in Wonderland over the years. I guess, you know, I think the original public consciousness was the John Tenniel drawings were the versions of the characters that were well known in the Victorian sort of zeitgeist. And we know that early film and stage versions stuck fairly closely to those 
drawings. And you can see that in that rather strange 1903 silent movie that survives for about eight minutes or so, which you can watch on YouTube. Yes, that's right. That original 1903 production was only a few minutes longer than that. It was quite short, you know, under 15 minutes, but it was actually the longest British film that had been produced up to that point in 1903, which is kind of interesting. It is. Interesting things in that. The 1951 Disney animated version is very well known, and I think the imagery from it has become some of the most popular images, certainly for Alice herself and for the Cheshire Cat and maybe others as well. Yes, because of course Disney's Alice wore the famous blue dress with the white pinafore apron. She wears the hairband, which I think has now taken on her name. And, you know, possibly the best-known version of Alice. Certainly the blue dress is the one that seems to survive into fancy dress and cosplay versions. And I thought that the blue dress probably came from the Disney version, although I'm told that there were coloured versions of John Tenniel's drawings done. So they were, you know, for later publications, people would colour in the drawings. And in that version, that there were some done with a blue dress. So possibly it goes back earlier than Disney. But certainly the Disney version, hugely popular and very wide in the public consciousness, I think. Yes, the Disney version, certainly the dress is quite different from what was in those original Tennille illustrations. So, yeah, it is something that clearly the image that we uh, that we see very often is based on that Disney production. And in recent years, we've seen Tim Burton take it on with Johnny Depp taking on the role of the Mad Hatter. And there have been uh, versions of Alice in Wonderland coming out All along, there was a version from the mid-1980s, 1985, I believe, for television coming from Irwin Allen that was on American television. And that was, at the time, quite an impressive and popular version as well. I remember it from then. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's again, as we've said, it's one of those Victorian classics of fiction that has been adapted many, many times. Yes, absolutely. So turning back to Jonathan Miller again for a moment, he was perhaps, well, he was well known for a lot of things, let's put it that way, perhaps best known for his theatre and opera direction, and the very many productions he did there. Although I know in the 1970s, he directed some versions of Shakespeare's plays for the BBC, Again, probably stuff that won't come up in our remit. Um, But, of course, he famously directed something that's more relevant to us. Yes, in 1968, so a couple of years after this Alice in Wonderland production, for Omnibus, he did this Whistle and I'll Come to You production based on the M.R. James story. We covered that in 2009, mainly on on British Invaders 58. 
And that was another sparse black and white film that had sort of a dreamlike or nightmarish quality to it and had many of the characters speaking in sort of strange mumbling ways. So also a very unusual uh, take on things. And of course, that black and white version of Whistle and I'll Come to You, famous now for inspiring Lawrence Gordon-Clark and his later production partner, Rosemary Hill, to start the long-running A Ghost Story for Christmas series on the BBC. Even though that original production, I think, didn't... I think it went out in the middle of the year. It wasn't a Christmas broadcast... But it is sort of the uh, text for A Ghost Story for Christmas, I seem to remember. Yes, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Yeah, you're right. It didn't come out at Christmas, but it did have a feel to it that was used for the Ghost Story for Christmas strand, which uh, would come out with a new story every year throughout the 1970s. And of course, we have covered all of those uh, productions that have so far been released on DVD. And hopefully we'll get to the more modern ones when they are finally released as well. Yes, we have covered those 1970s productions and they're interesting ones for sure. And of course, I'm going to say that probably we won't see on this podcast, we won't be talking about any other directed projects from Jonathan Miller because most of his other television work I don't think quite fits our remit. So we've got these two 1960s black and white productions both of them which do slightly odd things with the dialogue and the way characters interact or maybe don't interact. And um, I'm going to suggest that they make very interesting companion pieces, partly because they also have, both of them have elements of dream and nightmare in them. Done very well, of course, in Whistle and I Come To You, which manages to convey the feeling of a nightmare on screen. And, uh, well, we'll get to it in a moment, how well this production delivers the idea of a dream for Alice. So I think that brings us to talk about our own thoughts about this production. So, Eamon, what did you like about this 1966 production of Alice in Wonderland? So, I think there's a lot to like about this one, Brian. I'm going to start with how it looks, because it looks quite stunning still for a production that's over 55 years old. But the way they shot it in black and white with this deep focus, the way the BFI have transferred that to DVD for us means that it still looks quite amazing. Now, I've read some reviews of the DVD that noted a few defects on the transfer. I have to say, I didn't really notice those myself. All I could see was that it just looked beautiful black and white TV. So the look of it and the way it's been, you know, preserved and transferred, I think is fantastic. And that's the first thing I'd like to say about it, Brian. What about yourself? Well, I'll agree that it does look beautiful and there is as a visual and oral art film, it's a beautiful piece, for sure. I will mention the cast. Anne-Marie Malik was, I think, good at doing what Jonathan Miller was looking for, but the surrounding cast is not only full of legends like Peter Cook, Peter Sellers, John Gielgud, and so on, 
it also has interesting choices. They were more than just big names. They were bringing something interesting to those characters. So I think what the surrounding cast did in here was quite special. That certainly yeah, was something I noticed. Yes, I mean, if you've not seen this production, just us listing that cast of Peter Cook, Peter Sellers, Alan Bennett, Michael Redgrave, John Gilgood, Leah McKern, all these people, John Bird, I'm a fan of as well. Michael Goff. All these people in this production. Michael Goff, yes. I mean, it's remarkable. And um, they are doing fascinating things. And they've got great performances and great voices and great readings of the lines. So, yes, it's an absolutely stunning cast. I think we should also mention the score here because... Ravi Shankar's music on this is very good and it works perfectly with the sort of strange dreamlike quality that Miller was looking for here. One of the cultural icons of the 1960s, I mean, obviously his career lasted much longer than that, but, you know, what a fascinating moment, the mid-60s, and you've got Ravi Shankar doing the score for this strange little BBC teleplay. Oh, it's just fascinating. And I've again, I've seen some clips of Jonathan Miller in the recording studio with Ravi Shankar talking about the sort of the vibe or the sort of music he was after. It's just fascinating. It's just absolutely astonishing to see it. Oh, interesting. That would be interesting uh, behind-the-scenes footage to look at, for sure. We'll have to mention, as you've said, Anne-Marie Malik as Alice herself. Now, I think I think you're quite right, Brian. I think she delivers what Jonathan Miller asks for, which is this slightly bored still calm child wandering around observing on things commenting on them in her own monologue it's not a sort of like lively interactive performance but then this production doesn't call for that does it no it doesn't and we have to start talking about the concept of this production and the stylistic choices, and whether those are positive or negative or something else. Indeed we do. So we've got Jonathan Miller. He knows, you know, we, as we've said, he experienced the book as a child as a sort of nightmare, and he's trying very much to deliver this dreamlike quality to it, with the way it's filmed, the way that the actors are directed and performing, and the strange voiceover that goes with it as well. Did you find that that worked for you? Did it give you the feeling of a dream, or did it at times leave you feeling a bit sort of like, this is a bit strange and sterile and characters aren't interacting at all? Well, sort of both. It hit me as sort of an interesting piece artistically and an interesting take, but I also struggled with it. I think it is not very successful as a representation of Alice in Wonderland because it's just so different. And I did struggle watching it at points in part because I've watched it twice now and the first time I had difficulty figuring out who some of the characters were in part because you have no animal costumes and what have you. And they do eventually tell you who everyone is, but sometimes it waits a little bit longer than I want it to. And you have sort of this dour feel to it. One of the 
reviewers at the time referred to it as humorless. And some of the actors like Peter Sellers and so on do bring a bit of humor to it. And I love what some of those actors are doing. But the way that it's presented as a whole and what Anne-Marie Malik is doing as Alice is very much humorless and sort of dour. And that, for the most part, didn't really work for me. And interesting that on the commentary, apparently Jonathan Miller mentioned Peter Sellers' performance and how he was having to try and contain some of Peter Sellers' more typical voices and antics and trying to sort of like tone them down a bit because Peter Sellers was going for a more comedic approach than perhaps uh, Miller was asking for. Yes, I haven't heard the commentary. The DVD I have doesn't have it. But yeah, I could I could certainly imagine that. Uh, the concept of what Miller was looking for was so different from the concept that most of us have of Alice in Wonderland. And I'm sure the concept that the actors had of Alice in Wonderland too. So Peter Sellers, in addition to just, you know, doing what he could do so well... I'm sure he had in his mind a different, more traditional approach for Alice in Wonderland as well. Would you have found it improved if they'd gone for a more animal look for the animal characters? If they had done some costuming or makeup to make a white rabbit look like a white rabbit or a March hare like a hare and so on? I probably would have, but I would still have some of these struggles with the tone of it, which I did also enjoy uh, a lot of those things and the visuals and how the tone of it was done, but I struggled with it as well. And I found that it wasn't successful in representing Alice in Wonderland. And one thing in there, there is very little of the Cheshire Cat in this. Yes. We see an actual cat, uh, you know, an actual house cat that is referred to as the, as the Cheshire Cat. And some trickery to see the, the Cheshire Cat looking over things at one point. But there is no dialogue for the Cheshire Cat. We don't have the Cheshire Cat as a character in this which is something that some other versions have really made something out of. So I did miss that. Okay, very interesting. I mean, is it is it the sort of the tone and the fact that it doesn't give you a sort of more faithful version of Alice in Wonderland that causes you the problems? Or was there anything else that you sort of found in the negative column against this version? It was mostly the the tone and stylistic things and the um, sort of jarring nature of not having the, the animal costumes. Coming back and watching it for a second time helped me with that because then I sort of knew who everyone was at that point. So I did enjoy it more. Even at 70 minutes, I felt the pacing made this feel a little bit long. It's a very strange piece, and that is sort of both its strength and its weakness. And there are things that I definitely enjoyed because of that, and I'm glad I've seen it. And there are also things that were cumbersome and awkward, things that I didn't enjoy as much. Okay. What did you think of Miller's take on things and the lack of animal costumes and the sort of general feel that was brought to this? So I would describe myself as a huge fan of Jonathan Miller, and I 
I'm very impressed by these two 1960s television productions that we've looked at. And I think, you know, this makes a great companion piece to Whistle and I'll Come to You. I think this attains the sort of dreamlike feeling that he was going for and goes very well with that sort of nightmarish bleak eastern england coastal setting that we had with whistle and i'll come to you um the fact that the characters were not in sort of animal outfits or not clearly identified as out, as animals didn't bother me at all i was just stunned by the quality of the the actors and their performances and i quite liked all the weird stuff that goes with this production but it is very much I'm going to say it's horses for courses. You know, some people might find a sort of almost abstract art approach to Alice in Wonderland, might find it a bit strange. And it, you know, perhaps explains why it was hidden away after nine o'clock on an evening in between Christmas and New Year back in 66. But I, I, as you can tell, Brian, I was more convinced by this production and actually found it one of the more interesting things that I've seen recently. There is a lot to say for it, for sure. As as I've said, I'm sort of of two minds on this. I believe this is the second time that you have enjoyed a Jonathan Miller production more than I did on things we've covered. Yes, I think that's right. I think we are probably going to go similar to how we went when we got to, when we got to Whistle and I'll come to you all those years ago. Our listeners can probably tell which way this one's going. But, I, you know, I found this was interesting. I found there was an awful lot to enjoy in this production. Okay, very good. So should we go on to our recommendations? Let's get to recommendations. Whose turn is it to start? Maybe I'll start this one. Okay. So this is going to be a very cautious recommendation for me. If you are looking for a production of Alice in Wonderland because you want to see Alice in Wonderland and see it as it was in the book and see it possibly as something to share with children, this is not the production you want. It is not going to be first choice of productions of Alice in Wonderland to serve in that sort of role for many people, I think. It certainly isn't for me. If you are looking for an interesting art piece that takes a different angle of looking at Alice in Wonderland and is maybe not quite an adaptation, but more... Uh, looking at it through a different lens and doing something very different with it, then yes, take a look at it in that case. So yeah, cautious recommendation from me. Okay. Obviously, it's a huge recommendation from me. I love this production. If you are a fan of Jonathan Miller's Whistle and I'll Come to You, if you think like me, that's one of the scariest things you've seen on television and possibly one of the best entries in the ghost story for Christmas, although I realise it wasn't part of that strand when it was broadcast, um, then I think you should get this £13 DVD of Alice in Wonderland and enjoy the weird surreal dream from the mid-1960s with an astonishing cast and the music of Ravi Shankar. And if anybody's got the BFI version with the Jonathan Miller commentary, please get in touch with me. I would love to borrow that. Yes, it it does have an amazing cast. So if you are 
a fan of British actors and wanting to see them in different productions, then there's definitely something to say for that here. And if you've seen this production, and if you agree or disagree with myself or Brian, and you'd like to get in touch, please come to the Facebook group and let us know what you thought about it. Absolutely. So, in summary, this Jonathan Miller version of Alice in Wonderland introduces us to a somewhat strange and dispassionate, distanced Alice who we meet as she is being dressed by servants and there with her sister and soon goes on to the familiar adventures of meeting the White Rabbit and the March Hare, the King and Queen of Hearts, and so on and so forth, done in this very unusual way without the animal costumes, but still meeting a variety of weird and wonderful characters before she finally is back at home after either a long journey or a waking from a dream. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And please come back and join us next time. We are sticking with another classic piece of Victorian literature. We are looking at, I think, the fourth version we've seen of Robert Louis Stevenson's classic. We are looking at Jekyll and Hyde from 1990, this one starring no less than Michael Caine. Yes, that will be an interesting one to talk to, and uh, yet another interesting, very successful actor to talk about as well. Until then, you can find us at BritishInvaders.com. Or if you search for British Invaders on Facebook, you can find our Facebook group and join the conversation there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Brit Invaders Pod. We are also at vognetwork.com, which is the Voice of Geeks Network, which we're a proud member of. You'll find some other geek-related shows and streaming and so on going on there. Very much we're gaming sort of lean to their content but come and check us out at vognetwork.com absolutely so thank you for listening and this is brian from canada signing off yes thank you very much for being with us and until next time this is eamon in england waking from a dream